Otherwise, we will continue in the book of Ephesians. All right. Now, this week, we are uh, looking at the second great prayer in the book of Ephesians. And as I come to this passage, uh, this passage has, has pretty radically changed the way that I have prayed. And I think for the longest time, I was praying a certain prayer. And there's a prayer that said, uh, God, help me, help me to love you more. Help me to love you, help me to love you, help me to love you. And I look at my life and see that, that I don't have the, the abundance of affection that I should. I don't care enough. I don't want God enough. I don't cherish the gospel enough. And it created me this, this, this call, okay, help me to love you, help me to love you. And I prayed that prayer a lot. And felt like there was very little power in it. And felt like it, was just, it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't taking me anywhere. And then looking at the scriptures, I realized that maybe the prayer needed to be completely different. And Paul's prayer, it doesn't, it doesn't go that direction. Instead, it's asking that God would help us to understand the love that he already has for us in Christ. Not this call to focus on me and what I need to do, but instead to, to cherish what God has done for us in Christ. That we would comprehend the love that he has for us. And that is the prayer that we are learning about this morning. That is the prayer that I hope becomes the prayer of each of your hearts. That you would long to know the love of Christ displayed in the gospel, and that knowing that reality would transform us. That then our love would naturally spill out. And so we're going to see uh, Paul's prayer. We're going to see what, what drives that prayer, what, what drives him to, to pray this prayer for the church, these new believing Gentiles. We're going to see why we need to pray for it so desperately. Why do we need to ask for God's help to understand his love and then finally, what is the ultimate result? What does it bring about in the life of believers? And we're going to see that we are to pray to God in all of his abundant riches that we would have power to comprehend the love that Christ has for us. That we would give God all of the glory for the gospel that he has already fulfilled in our lives. So with that, let's turn to Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. And there it is. For this reason, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you for the beauty of its direction, that it is completely focused on on you and your love. Father, asking us to do to do nothing but to, to comprehend. And Father, we ask that you would fulfill this prayer among us, that you would answer it, that you would give us a supernatural comprehension of the love of Christ. Lord, would you use this sermon to push us one step further towards that comprehension? And Lord, would that become a, a lifelong pursuit that we would know the love of Christ? We pray this in his name. All right, so we're going to begin with why. Why does Paul start praying at this point? And Paul, over these past couple chapters, he keeps interrupting himself. Over and over, we see the same refrain. He says, for this reason, and then he gets sidetracked. He's about to jump into this prayer, but for this reason, uh, remember, the Gentiles have been saved. And for this reason, oh, right, I forgot to tell you that I'm a, I'm a minister to the Gentiles, and that's an amazing thing. But he finally gets there. He finally gets to what he's, his point has been. And he's, for this reason, he has to pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, when Paul is saying that, that for this reason, what is the reason? All right, that's when we have to look back. We want to understand. And he's, he's reflecting on the things that he has told these Gentile believers in chapters 2 and 3 so far. And these are the beautiful truths of the gospel. The core of our faith, some of the, our, our favorite passages that summarize the, just the, the simple and amazing reality of what Christ has done for us. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has said that that those who believe in Christ have been risen from, from death into life. Not by any action of theirs, but by grace. And by a simple act of faith. And nothing else. He's spoken about the Gentiles. And the Gentiles have been brought in, so they're not strangers and exiles. No, they're, they're part of the very household of God. And not just part of the household, but they are part of the temple. These people who couldn't even enter the temple are now the temple itself, the very dwelling place of God. Chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So they have been saved, and they have been not only saved, but they have been brought into this holy family. They have been adopted. And they are now children of the living God. 
Now, why does this make Paul pray? Paul prays because he recognizes that he can say these amazing and glorious things and no one cares. That's the reality of it. He can say all these amazing things and, and we can still be yawning in our seats and thinking about what we're going to want to eat for lunch in an hour. And that's the reality of human nature. And he prays so that the Ephesian church, they might, and, and all the churches that this letter is, is going to, that they might care. This might have an impact on their souls. They might see the, the reality for what it is that this might just not just pass them by. And so he's forced to pray. He's desperate for this to hit people's hearts and for them not merely to hear or pretend to comprehend, but to know in the depths of their soul that these, what these realities mean. Now there's another reason he prays. He prays because all of these amazing truths have now given him and every other believer this amazing access to their Father. That God is now the Father that can be encountered at any moment. Chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 3.11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So he prays for the, the church because they need to know these things and actually believe them, but also because he now has this, this amazing freedom to pray and to go into the presence of his Father and out of all of his Father's richness to, to ask of things and to beseech, beseech his Father on behalf of these Gentile believers who are immature in their faith and need to know these things. And so he goes. He goes before his God. And what is, of all things, this bold request that Paul makes of God, his newfound father? Verse 16. He gets on his knees that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So he prays. He prays that God might bless them out of his abundant riches of his glory. All right, what does that mean? The riches of God's glory. I think probably the best way of saying this is, is God has glorious riches that are his to his to pour out. Every good and, and beautiful blessing is from on high, given from our Father. And we think of the, the infinite blessings that come from God. Love, peace, joy, every, every material blessing, life everlasting. And, he, and Paul is saying that, yes, uh, I'm like kind of entering into this treasure trove of God and I'm asking for one thing. Out of all of these riches, riches that come to us because we are united to, to God by the Spirit, riches that come to us because Christ dwells within us, 
And what does he choose? What does he choose out of all of these riches to ask for? Now, I think of this kind of like, uh, kind of like Aladdin. All right? So the, the cave is open, the mouth is opened, and Paul is now entering in, and he's, he's seeing all of the riches of God before him, and he can choose anything. And there are all of the blessings open to him, and yet in his prayer, what does he choose of everything? What is the great prize? What would you choose? Of all of the spiritual blessings, of all of the things that God could give you, would you want more of a taste of, of heaven right now? Do you want material blessings, which are good gifts? Would you want comfort? Would you, would you want peace? Would you want just a little bit more holiness or faith? What is most valuable to you? What, what would you ask for? What do you ask for? We probably don't ask for this. Paul asks for power. For spiritual power in the inner person. Not just power in the world, but, but that in the hearts of these believers that they might have power and strength. That God might overwhelm their weakness with spiritual power granted by the Holy Spirit and by the very indwelling of Christ. Right. Power to do what? Once again, verse, verse 17. Power that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. That is the treasure that Paul goes in to the throne room of God and asks his father for. Of all of the gifts he longs to bring to this new church, that is the thing he longs to give them. Power to comprehend the love of Christ. Power to comprehend the love of Christ. So he sees, he sees these believers and he sees they're weak. They're weak. They're intellectually weak. They are too weak to actually understand and comprehend just how vast the love of Christ really is. All right, it's like, it's like actually, okay, let's, let's all think about infinity for a second. And we try to. And we realize we haven't gotten there and we give up. All right. We cannot do it. All right. It's like, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a beetle showing up and saying, you know, I'm going to do calculus today. And we're going to think about uh, imaginary numbers. And All right. They are too weak to understand the love of Christ. Intellectually, too weak. Spiritually and emotionally too weak. That as they encounter the love of Christ, doubts 
and lies and reasons to, to stamp down the love of Christ and minimize the love of Christ come rushing in and they are spiritually unable to grasp the reality of the extent of Christ's love for them. They are too weak to understand. And so, what, is, what does Paul give them? He gives them this analogy. A geometric analogy, a structural, dimensional analogy. And he says, okay, I want to give you a picture of this love that you are failing to grasp. And it starts with a foundation. A foundation of love. And that is, that is the, the foundation of our relationship with God. That is our, our foundation of everything that we, we bring to the table and build upon is a foundation of love. God's love for us. We've already spoken of it. The fact that he, he elects us and chooses us not for any other reason but because he loves us. And because of the greatness of his love towards sinners who cannot earn his love, but he bestows upon them freely. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. What is the foundation of this? It has nothing to do with you. If you are chosen, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what you have done. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with the foundation of God's love for you and his unilateral adoption of you. We go on. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there's this underlying love that causes him to, to choose us and this love that causes him to, to love us even in our deadness, even in all of our sin, in our hatred of God, in our rejection of him. He responds with this foundation of love towards us, love that we have, we have not earned, we cannot earn, and we never will. And so he's laying the foundation and saying, okay, the foundation of your relationship is love, but that's not enough. And many of you, I think, you, you, you get the foundation. That you, you understand that the gospel is fundamentally his unilateral love for you. But it doesn't stop at the foundation. And I think we do stop there. And he's saying, no, okay, on that foundation, I want you to see the love that he has for you even after salvation, day in and day out, every second, because of your new standing in Christ. And he says, from there, okay, I want you to understand the breadth. The breadth of the love that Christ has for us, east and west, extending. All right, I think of, I think of the, being on the, the beach and looking to either side, and you see the, the shore, the shoreline just extending as far as the eye can see. The breadth, the width of God's love for his people, for his children, for his workmanship, for these ones he has called his temple. 
And he goes on, okay, now the breadth, now the length. The length. If we're using that same analogy on the beach, we look out then and see ever reaching forward, the, the skyline as the water continues and continues as far as the eyes can see. The length of his great love for us. And on this foundation then, he says, the, the height. I went to New York this last week. And looking up at One World Trade, all right, all right, you see it. You see it extending up and it's so tall. It's like, it, doesn't even, it doesn't even look like it goes straight. It looks like it like bends over you and like towers over you like it's going to fall on you. Like that, that's, what, that's what we're talking about. The height. Now, as I think about this, uh, I can't help but think of the, all right, what is something that, that is incomprehensibly vast, like Paul talks about here? Something you can't even fathom how big it is and how, how long and wide and high it is. All right, think of, think of the last time you stood and, and looked up at the sky at night. And I've been asked before, like, why did God just make this vast nothingness? That just galaxy after galaxy after galaxy, that the stars just extend far beyond, like, we could even imagine. Why would he just make such a waste of space? And you think, well, all right, maybe it is a picture of vastness for us. That we have in creation something that, that starts to approach Something that has the breadth and the length and the heights of something that we just like can't even comprehend. And then to say, you know what? That is the love of Christ. The love of the Christ is extending like that. Unfathomable love. And then if we don't get enough, he's like, well, I don't have any more dimensions left, so let's go deep. <laughs> Let's go to the depths. It also goes down as far as you can imagine, and, and it goes there too. And then, he says, you know, oh, and, and by the way, you're trying to comprehend something that surpasses all knowledge. That is how vast and reaching it is. Uh, you, are, you are trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. It is so vast. All right. Now I ask us, do you think you really understand the love that Christ has for you? No. You are too weak to understand it. I'm too weak to understand it. I'm too weak to articulate it. And that's why Paul prays. He prays because he's seen all of the... the, the amazing glories of the gospel and his great love for us, Jesus coming to die for our sins and, and now our new standing in Christ. And he says, like, we don't understand. You don't understand. And our best hope to understand this incomprehensible thing is to pray. Because we are too weak. How does that weakness express itself? First, uh, in our weakness... 
We take that vast, incomprehensible love and we think, you know, it, it probably isn't bigger than my sin. Yeah, but it's not bigger than my sin. Surely he must be angry at me. Surely he must be disappointed. Surely he must just see nothing but the, the blight of my life. And maybe that looks like looking at the, the past history of sin and not really believing the gospel. Or maybe it looks like judging his love for us as, as this wave based upon how good we were this last week or this last day or this last hour. All right, what, what is this saying? This is saying that, no, it's a, his love is, is bigger than your sin. And if Jesus Christ has died for your sins and washed you clean from all of your sin, then the love of Christ is, is bigger than whatever sin you bring to the table. And his, the sin is undiluted by this ocean of love that stands before you. Are you too weak to comprehend that? Yeah. Or we think that uh, in our weakness, that God's love is only as far, lasts until suffering begins. And things start to go wrong, and what do we think? He doesn't love me anymore. Well, I guess my, my love ran out. I thought he loved me, but then, then he did this, and now there's suffering, now there's death, now there's illness. All right, you think that, you think this, any amount of suffering can, can cancel out the vast immensity of the incomprehensible love of Christ for you? That's foolishness, that's weakness. And it's a failure to understand the the amazing nature of our God who's, who promises to actually use, use suffering and use trials and use sorrows to love us. To give us what is best. To, to free us from temptation and idolatry. To, to draw us to himself. To give us eternal life and break us of sin. All right. We bring the same weakness we brought as teenagers, mad at our parents for not letting us go to a party. Like we bring that same weakness and ignorance and silliness to God and we question his love. We are weak. Or maybe Or maybe you're too weak to understand that God's love is not unconditional. All right, what do I mean? Uh, I had this, uh, Dave Pallison, he was uh, the director of CCEF, uh, a counseling organization, and he was, he was really big into the fact, he said, God's love is not unconditional. It's not unconditional. He says, it's not conditional either. Conditional love would be like, well, it, it de- I'll love you depending on what you do. And he says, well, an unconditional love is I'll love you in spite of what you do, but I'm going to leave you how you are. I'll just, I'll take you as you come. 
He's saying, no, that's a, that's a hideous picture of love. God is way better than that. And the analogy of this. Okay, so uh, God talks about loving his people as loving a woman. And he finds a woman in rags, lying on the street. And she is decrepit and reeking and starving. Her hair is matted and her teeth are mangled and she's addicted and enslaved, impoverished and hopeless. And God does not come and say, I will love you unconditionally just as you are. And I will, I will just, I don't care what happens to you. You are perfect as is. No! He does not say that. And that's not how he treats us. What does he do to that woman? No, he, he feeds and he clothes. He brings her into his own home. He binds up her wounds. He, he cleanses her and washes her. He gives her freedom. He helps her break the addictions. He, he clothes her in silk garments. He puts gold chains around her neck. He puts the finest jewels on her hands and he presents her to himself in majesty and holiness and beautiful splendor as his beloved wife. How dare we, in our weakness, hope that God would give us unconditional love? No, he doesn't want to just leave us in the muck and mire and say, you know what, I just want you just as you are. No, he's, he's going to transform us and leave us far more beautiful than we would ever even imagine. He'd love us in a way that is uncomfortable and shocking and changes us from the inside out. How weak we are to not understand that that is how much God loves us. And that is how he interacts with us. It is so much better. And yet, when he starts doing that to us, we, we, we know, like, how, how dare you pick the fleas off me? I love the fleas. Why can't you just accept me as I am? No, he refuses. He will not tamper down his love so that we feel comfortable. And so what do we need? We need spiritual power. Spiritual power to understand the love of Christ. The love that God has for us. The love that he has for the masterpiece that he is transforming us into. The, the love that he has for his children that he's making into the image of himself, the trophies of his glorious grace, the beautiful temple that he is conforming us into, the, the new people that he's ruling over. Now, for those of you who are believers, this is, this is the, the call for us to ever be advancing in understanding and comprehending and believing the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now imagine, imagine what your life would look like if you really believed God loved you. 
if you really believed it. Imagine how you'd interact with sin. You have this one who loves you completely and perfectly and totally, and you have no doubt of that. And then you have him saying, oh no, that's poisonous and will kill you. That's called sin. Don't do that. How would we respond? We're not kicking and screaming. We're saying, uh, I, I believe he loves me, and I believe this is actually going to bring death. He said it would. So yes, I will obey. I don't want that thing. Why would I want something that this one who loves me says is death? It becomes very simple. Or how does it change the way you receive things in the world? I think of Job saying to his wife, like, how can we accept good from God and not also trouble? He's the same God. If he is good, he's good. And we receive all things. And we know that he loves us, so he's going to give us what is for our ultimate good, even though I can't see it. I'm not going to throw something down and say, how dare you give this to me? No, you know he, I, I know your character. If you are giving it, it's because you love. How would it change the way that you respond to his calls toward you? I think if we don't love God, we see like just horrible yokes of oppression, of sacrifice that we should love other people and sacrifice and, and give for them. But if he really does love us, then this is, this is the path of life he has set before us. And we joyfully walk in it. And we love to have our lives guided by this one who loves us and cares for us with insurmountable, unfathomable love. And how does, how does Paul describe this? He just Paul describes this, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. You may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Do you feel filled? Do you feel full? Like satiated? Content? Or you just like constantly feel hungry and like ravenous and running after all of these things? No, what is he saying? He's saying like, this is one thing that will fill you up and you will be truly at peace. Fullness of joy, fullness of comfort in the one knowing him, fullness of identity. Like, you know exactly who you are. You are one loved by God. Now, I hope and I pray that we'd have an appetite for that kind of fullness. That we would long to know the fullness that comes from truly believing that we are loved. Christ and that it free us from running back to the buffet over and over and over and finding nothing but death and sin can you taste it do you want that then pray ask him that you would know the love of Christ Seek that. Don't seek what you can do. Seek what to, to comprehend the depths 
and the height and the breadth and the length. Now, for those of you who are not believers, we've been speaking about, about believers, but this, this is a, a weakness to fail to comprehend and to receive the love of Christ. He is, he's longing to share with you that the, the full depth and breadth and width of all of his love for you, the, un, the unconditional, superconditional, transforming love that comes at the cost of, of grace and faith. This is the gift that is being offered. Receive it. Believe in him. What, what a beautiful gift can, can he give to you? The fullness of God. Now, what happens? What happens as a final result? This will be brief. Paul, after praying this, he says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, the first thing I want us to see here, like, he's, he's, he's noticing the character of God and he's able to do stuff. And I think, first of all, he's able to answer this prayer. This is not some kind of like pipe dream that we, we wish that maybe we'd be fulfilled and, and know his love. No, he's really able to do it. He can fulfill this prayer. That's what he does. And he longs to. And also, like, we doubt that he can actually love in every moment and in every place and in every situation. All right, he can. He really can redeem everything. He can do everything for his glory. He can do everything that results in your ultimate goodness and love. Do you believe that? Are you willing to, to believe in this kind of God and battle your own doubts about his love for you and his ability to love? And his, Are you willing to fight all of those doubts that say, no, he's, he's mad at me or he hates me or... He sees me in my sin or he doesn't really care. He really is this God. And just because you can't see his love for what it, at the moment doesn't mean it's not there. A second thing. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. If we understand his love, we give him all the glory. Because you, you are not lovely. You are not lovable. You are not wonderful. You are not worthy of all of the unfathomable, unsurpassable love of Christ. No, he, is, he has done that. And it's the greatness of his love, not the greatness of us. It's the greatness of his grace and his mercy. It's the greatness of his forgiveness of all of our sins. It's the greatness of his ability to transform us into something lovely when we were just dead. 
in our trespasses and sin. And so, may we give him all the glory. May we see that this is his capacity to love and is fulfilling it in Christ. Let us pray. Give us the ability to love, to comprehend the vastness of the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, well, these are feeble words seeking to understand something that is incomprehensible and we so desperately need your help. We confess that we do not understand your love. We do not believe it. In all of our weakness and in all of our sin, we deny it and we reject it and we question it and doubt it. And Would you help us? Out of all of your glorious riches, would you give us the strengthening power to comprehend the love that Christ has for us. A love made evidence in his death and resurrection. Father, we thank you and praise you for the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Would we receive it and bask in it and live in it? To your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.